Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm here at the BBC's new broadcasting house and joined by their Europe editor, Katia Adler. With over 20 years at the Beeb, Katia has reported from all over the world, has covered the deaths of major figures such as Pope John Paul II and Yasser Arafat, and released several documentaries, including the award-winning Children of War, Child Migrants, and After Brexit, The Battle for Europe. These days, of course, you'll find her regularly leading all flagship BBC news programmes, covering the constant twists and turns of Brexit, but let's not forget that she also leads their coverage for everything else that happens on the continent as well. Katya, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. So Katya, before we started recording the podcast, we were having a bit of chit-chat and you said that you took the BBC's Europe editor job and then everything went a bit bonkers. I think that's actually a great first question. Discuss. <laughs> yes, that's a very intellectual way for me to describe <laughs> yeah. it. Well, I, th- I think um, at the time, uh, although I was very interested in Europe. I started my career at the BBC in European programmes. I've lived in many different countries across Europe. I feel I know it very well. So it was sort of a natural glove to put on. But at the same time, having spent so many years in the Middle East, doing documentaries like covering Mexico's drug wars and the and the impact on just normal society there, you know, children who live there and mums trying to take their kids to school, I just thought, Europe? Really? Really? Is it going to be all about pensions? It's really? not interesting, really, is um, it? And then, and then it's... And um, I probably shouldn't say that. But anyway, but that was sort of knocking at the back of my mind. And then... It started and it did go bonkers. I mean, we had the Greek debt crisis, the migration crisis, the calling of the Brexit referendum, and then, of course, the result of the, the referendum, um, populism, you know, sweeping across uh, Europe. I'd argue that it, it's not finished by any means. And so it's it's been extremely busy and continues to be very, very busy indeed. I mean, it is the single defining issue, political issue of the generation now, Brexit, isn't it? And I, I get the feeling no one quite knows what the hell is going on. I, I tune into BBC. BBC News programmes for you to tell me what's happening, frankly. I think uh, it is, it, it, it is, I think we'll look back and just see how big um, this really was. But I think you, you come, come across different attitudes. So those who think it's very, very, very important and who care very much about it. And definitely if you, if you sort of dip your toes in the Twitter sphere, then, you know, you, you get those reactions and that might include people saying you're just part of the Brexit Broadcasting Corporation or you're just part of the Brussels Broadcasting Corporation because people feel so very, very strongly about this issue. On the other hand, there are also those who just say, oh, haven't we left yet? Can we why are we still it? talking about it? And why aren't we talking about the health service more? And why are we still talking about Brexit? So, you know, I'm, I'm aware of all of those attitudes. But my hat also is what's going on on the other side of the channel um, and in, in the Irish Republic as well. So it, although this is for domestically um, a huge issue, I'm British. This is the British Broadcasting Corporation. I'm very much following what the Europeans are thinking about it, what they're writing about it and what they're saying off the record. And I think from a broadcasting point of view, what's been frustrating for me in in these most recent phases is that before the official negotiations began, the so-called Article 50 negotiations, as it's called in um, in Eurospeak, the Europeans had prime ministers and members of the commission were extremely keen to be interviewed. And now they don't want to. So I talk to them all the time and it means keeping in very good contact. But when I'm package making for television or they don't radio, want to go on air. they don't want to go on air. So it's off the record. So you end up saying things like um, my sources or this or that. And of course, in in this era that we live in, where there's a lot of talk of fake news and, you know, mistrust in news and is news just part of the establishment, you know, and, and, and that kind of debate that we're, we're really living now. That's a problem because people are like, what sources? You're making it all up. It's all opinion. Um, so Which is actually quite insulting, frankly. OK, it's my job to partly to insult. <laughs> I mean, if you go out there as a public figure and say something, I mean, when I lived in the Middle East, I mean, I once received excrement in the post. I have to say that was really uh, the highlight of my career. Insulting, I, I think, you know, you when you go out in public and... Uh, and talk about controversial issues, such as I did in the Middle East, and now obviously with Brexit, you expect a certain kind of backlash. It doesn't mean you like it. Um, and it also doesn't mean that you dismiss it out of hand. I think it's very important that I, I, I do, I mean, apart from the things that are just insane that are thrown at you, but if there's criticism of your coverage, I look at it um, and think, do they have a point? And then carry on. 
But, you know, recently the Financial Times compared uh, Brexit uh, supporters and detractors to football fans. You know, others would say it's kind of almost like a religious fervour at times. And I think in that fevered atmosphere, I and other colleagues covering this, well, we're, we're just in the wave. I mean, the, the issue of Brexit itself cuts across political parties. It cuts across families. Um, it, like you say, it is, it is quite a tribal thing. Uh, do you take some comfort in the fact that you seem to be equally criticised for being pro-Brexit and pro-Remain? And if both sides are having a go at you for bias, that tends to me to seem that you, you're actually doing a pretty good job of remaining neutral and impartial. I think that's sort of generally what one said. I mean, definitely when I was um, in the Middle East, we said, well, if we're getting flack from both sides, we must be doing a good job. I think, you know, with Brexit... <sighs> It's, it's, it changes so much from day to day. Um, and as you say, this this affects British society um, so deeply. I don't think you, I can afford to be flip about it. So it's not like I look at my Twitter feed and think, oh, I've got hate mail from, you know, Remainers and Leavers, therefore it's all OK. I don't feel that. So I, I have a look and I listen. I don't I do not engage, actually. Um, because I've made a decision that, again, sorry to keep referring back to the Middle East, but for me, it, it, it's, it's sort of comparable in the kind of barrage of accusations you might be thrown at you. But at the time, it was very much our policy to answer each and every complaint, um, apart from the letter I received as excrement in the post. Yeah, you wouldn't have um, time to do that now. Um, I wouldn't have time to do that. And also, I think on, on, the, on Twitter sphere, it, you can just get involved in an endless debate and I don't think that's productive so I only engage in um, in tweets where a question is asked like a, a factual question and otherwise whether it's positive or negative I don't engage but I do read and I, I take on board and think do they have a point do they not have a point you know and then move on do, do you uh, do you block or mute people who just consistently abuse you because like you said it is literally a waste of your time I I've had some things investigated but wow. um, I think I would also say that there are other colleagues who suffer more on this point than I do. That's not an invitation, by the way, for anyone <laughs> of course. Who had to take to Twitter against me. But um, but I think I think this is part and parcel. And I, as a journalist, you you know w- w- why am I doing this job and why do I do it? I do it with conviction, and I do it because I think that the coverage that I'm giving of any particular story is the correct and balanced one. I think you know BBC objectivity is something that that we do strive for. The editor role is an interesting one because you are supposed to reach conclusions. That's what that's what this job grade is about. It's about not saying on the one hand, on the other hand. And anyway, that's kind of bland reporting. So I think it's, you know, that, that comes very much, you know, we have this book, I'm sure you've seen, you've done so many um, BBC interviews that we've got this massive tome, you know, <laughs> the guidelines, our editorial guidelines. So, you know, we, we, we do want to be balanced, we want to be fair, we want to be objective. And I know that there are many who are listening to this who feel that the BBC is not, but this is something that we do strive to be. But yes, again, part of my role is, is, is really taking a call, like I did with the, with the Greek debt crisis, like I will do about Brexit negotiations and so on. These are incredibly important issues, and it's right that you've got such a commitment to report them as, as you do. But do you not feel that journalism is under attack uh, more than ever? I mean, first of all, you've got Donald Trump and the whole fake news agenda, but you've also got, you know, demonstrations in Scotland against Nick Robinson, Laura Koonsberg having to have a bodyguard at Labour conference. That, that, this... This is new. This doesn't seem to be. This seems to be more intense than ever now. The 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 threat to journalism. Yes, I think there is there, there is partly a threat to journalism, and the, and also sometimes I feel very deflated by it. To be honest, and I just think I do as a viewer. And listener. What's the point? Because if people will tend more and more now to just go in search of news that um, supports their already made opinions then what's the point of carrying on and trying to be balanced and informative and so on but then I kind of give myself a good old slap around the face and say come on Adler pull yourself together and actually that's not the case and I think you know the BBC's always trying to find how can we get to that younger audience how can we appeal and when we say young it's not I mean it's not that young it's kind of you know under the under 40s under 35s how can we how how can we just don't even know how old I am (laughs) you know how how can we how can we reach out to them? But I actually, I have faith, and I have brothers-in-law on whom I base my faith, <laughs> but, um, you know, that the younger audience appreciate quality. And I, I, I don't think it's just everybody's in the echo chamber and nobody cares about mm. quality. And I just, I, I think that's just as dismissive as we are with Trump, that all his supporters are stupid or all leavers are like this and all remainers like that. You know, I think that's exactly what my job is there to say. That is the kind of sort of dismissive attitude or the labelling that we have to get away from because, you know, that's not a story. Those it's are not just helpful. accusations. It's not helpful, but it's actually not realistic either. It's, and it's not true.
It's not true. Amongst leavers, you'll find all sorts of people amongst Remainers, all sorts of people, you know, in, in, in any um, amongst migrants, refugees, wh whatever group you want to talk about, you will find nuances um, and different categories of, of, of people and opinion. So I think, you know, just to sort of say, oh, journalism's over or I, I don't think that's actually really looking or listening to people. And one of the most, um, I say, use the word exciting, but, you know, uh, point so far of, of being Europeda has has been that wave of, for want of a better word, you know, populism that, that swept across Europe. And you could say, you know, that there was an anti-establishment element also to the to the Brexit debate here as well. And I think it, it's, again, you know, it's irrelevant whether you agree or disagree. But the fact that, you know, in Germany, Italy, um, Sweden, you know, I've met people who said, I haven't bothered voting for years. I just haven't bothered voting because nobody was listening. And now I've got a party that listens to me or now I feel that I can make, you know, my, my views understood. And I, I think that's important for democracy. And I think as a journalist, that's exciting. So is society more polarised now in Europe than we've, we've seen for years? Yes, it is. But, you know, sometimes that's not necessarily a bad thing because complacency is dangerous. And I, I remember when I was covering European politics um, in the early 2000s for the BBC and it was like, yes, and another European election yawn, mm. you know, whether it would be Italy or Germany or whatever. It's like boring. It's, you know, the same because you it's knew going to win. And it was a, it's not, not only is it not boring because it shouldn't be entertaining, but, you know, there is change happening in society and people, not just politicians who are paid to do it, people are making their voices heard. And they're angry or they're frustrated, you know, and you could say, I believe of this, you know, a lot of this goes back to the 2008, you know, economic crisis. I'm not saying that that's the reason we voted for Brexit, not at all. But I'm saying this anti-establishment feeling that we've seen right across Europe, um, including in the UK, has a lot to do with that and the fact that the powers that be fail to protect the people and that, you know, centre-left parties fail to protect the people who are their traditional base. And I think that impact and also, you know, arguably um, the Iraq war as well. Weapons of mass destruction. It was a lie. Why should we believe the powers that be? And I think these are you know, very impactful events. And I think we're sort of seeing reverberations of that still. And that as a journalist, to see all of that happening and to talk to those the decision makers right at the top, some of whom are being completely, you know, unseated now in all of this, and people who are just going out to vote or choosing not to vote and hearing their opinions. That's exciting as a journalist, even at my grand old age. And thank you for pointing out being here for more than 20 years. I now feel really old. <laughs> yeah, well, I do too. Yeah, I mean, is there a flip <clears throat> side to that, the, the excitement of, of, you know, all of the things that you've covered, like the, the Greek debt crisis, migrant crisis, Brexit and so on, that um, it can almost pull focus? Because as you write rightly pointed out at the beginning, Europe editor is not just Brexit. It's quite a big continent with a lot of countries where other stuff's happening. Do you feel, though, that Brexit has stolen all the attention, that it's the elephant in the room, the person that's shouting the loudest, and you have to kind of struggle to cover anything else? I think, I mean, there's a balance to that. One thing that always makes me laugh now is that, you know, wherever... we. Whichever prime minister I ask for an interview now or if it's a European summit um, in Brussels and, you know, there's, there's the, the prime ministers from all over um, the EU are there. Whenever I come near them or another UK journalist, you can just see them thinking, oh, it's going to be a question about Brexit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. Well, well, it will be, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> That's course, right. Because, because that, that is our, you know, German elections, what does it mean for Brexit? <laughs> Italian elections, what does it mean for Brexit? Migrant crisis, what does it mean for Brexit? You know, so, so yes, there is, there's an element of that. But I, t I take my job very seriously in that it is multifaceted and and although brexit sucks up a lot of um energy and and time i also cover it when i'm away in italy now doing coverage ahead of the election there or in germany at the time so you know i can do brexit cast our, our podcast weekly podcast on brexit where we try to be more informal and you know talk about things um at length, which I think is important with Brexit, actually, because you can't be flip about it and it's hard to cram it always into sort of 50 seconds. But, you know, that's something that I'll do whichever country I'm in um, in Europe. So I continue to cover all the stories. But it is true. I don't cover as many of those as I would have done um, without this whole Brexit debate and, and all the negotiations going on. I can't just say wow, Poland is looking really interesting now, I'll go straight there because there may be some important part of the negotiations of Brexit going on at the moment. So it is, 
it's a juggle. In terms of your own journalism, do you have a, a more deliberate lens now when you're reporting things that happen in Europe? So, for example, when you're in the Middle East, you know, the Palestinians did this, the Israelis did that. You're reporting stuff as it happened and giving your interpretation. Whereas now, when you're reporting on Brexit, you can't just say this happened. You also have to say this happened and this is what it means for you as the British viewer. Is there a deliberate effort on that part? No, I'd be very, very disappointed in the 17 years that preceded the three years in this job if I only started giving context now. Context is always important. And also with the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, one famous example that, that I give to, um, you know, if I go to universities or ever and talk to, to students about, about journalism, again, is that pinch of salt I was talking about when you deal with authority or, you know, you, you interview, you know, heads of state or something like that, you know, as a, as a young journalist. I remember when I first came to to Israel and there was some, uh, you know, the papers were full of the fact that you know, Israel was going to go to war with Syria and Lebanon and Jordan and there was going to be a new intifada of the Palestinians and it was all going to happen at one time. I said, this sounds a bit apocalyptic. And a friend of mine pointed out to me and he said, um, don't you know that the Minister of, Ministry of Defence is just up for a budget review? Uh-huh. So, you know, it's, it's good to always have sort of a stand-back approach where you see the big picture. And in Brexit, that's hugely important as well. Because, again, you know, from day to day, it's like, well, Michel Barnier said that and David Davis said that. But what's the big picture? Well, if you ask me, the big picture is a deal will be done. It has to be. It will be done because just as in EU terms, France is allowed to break financial rules, Germany breaks financial rules, Italy breaks financial rules, but the little countries are not allowed to. Why? Because the big ones are too big to fail. And it's hypocritical and all sorts. But that is the actual reality of it. And the UK is too big to fail in its attempt to make an agreement with the EU. The EU will not let it happen because the EU is looking out for its own interests. And it's it's in interest to make a deal with the UK. What kind of deal and what element of cherry picking will be allowed, that famous phrase, or as some of the Europeans like to call it, cherry picking. That is not yet clear because that will come further down in the negotiations. But, you know, I would be amazed... Um, if there is no deal, because it is in both sides' interest. And therefore, despite all of the rhetoric, there's always rhetoric. And it's always, you know, it's sort of at, at the beginning, you know, in, the, in a boxing ring. You know, e- each boxer is going, oh, I'm really hard, I'm, I'm going to kill him, you know, yeah. I'm going to kill you, I'm going to knock you out. You know, I'm, there's me trying to look tough in my shoulder pads, but not very. But anyway, <laughs> you know, you're going to, you know, yeah, exactly. But you're, you're going to try and look as mean and as tough as you can. But when it comes to Brexit, they're not trying to knock each other out in the end because they both sides want to have a deal. So, But the, for their own constituents, they also have to look tough. And from the EU's perspective, it wants a deal with the UK, but it cannot be seen to be giving in too quickly because otherwise the more Eurosceptic countries like Sweden or Hungary will say, oh, I'll do that then. If I can have the good bits and I don't have to do the annoying bits, I'll leave as well. So the EU cannot afford to give in now, but there will be give and take. I mean, I'm, you know, this is me putting my, you can play this back to me when I'm on the scrap heap of journalistic history, but that, but that you know, that's what I would say. I'm sure that's many, many decades away. <laughs> Actually, even that sounds terrible. Um, but uh, this sounds almost like a, a, a trite and inane question, but, you know, you've, you've covered, you know, war zones both figuratively and literally. You know, when you uh, choose a different beat, when you move on from Europe, will, do you want to choose something a, a bit less stressful and dramatic, really? I mean, could you be the BBC's mindfulness correspondent or something? <laughs> <laughs> Relaxation correspondent? It just seems to be such incredible drama. Um, well, maybe I'm a drama queen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I, um, I think if it's not intense, it's not my bag, really. So, you know, I, I, I enjoy the intensity of a story. Um, and I like becoming, you know, intellectually involved. It, it, you know, if it's just bland for me, then I'm not interested. I'm not saying that mindfulness is, is bland. Yeah. But I think I think I do I do like to be um, in the thick of things. But just for, about me as a person, I tend to get really, really interested in, in whatever I do. Um, that doesn't always result in good cooking, unfortunately, in my kitchen, ask my children. But um, it means I'll try and throw myself into whatever project it is. Um, and I enjoy doing that. And when you've been reporting from the theatre of war in the war zone itself, how do you cope with being in physical danger? I mean, it's my choice to go. I mean, what do you, you know, you obviously, I don't, I don't, I'm not a fan of the kind of journalism where you throw yourself in the line of fire hoping to get, win some award with some fantastic piece to camera. 
Um, but I think, but if you if you choose to go into a war zone, then you know that you are putting yourself into physical danger. The first time I went into a war zone was before I joined the BBC. I was working for the Austrian Broadcasting Corporation, ninety nine. Um, it was uh, I think I was freelancing already for the BBC then, but I was working for the ORF, and I went to Kosovo in ninety nine. Wow! And I still remember it because I was so scared. And um, I went for radio, and it was just it was me. And, um, and my recording equipment and the ORF got me to sign a piece of paper that said that if I was killed as we went through the Republic of Serbska, it wasn't their fault. Um, nice. And, and I was scared because I hadn't up until that time in my life been surrounded with people with guns and gunfire. And um, and, and obviously, it, you know, it, it, it stuck very much in my mind. I mean, I spent some time with the Austrian army there and they were neutral. Um, and so there was a lot with refugees, a lot of work with refugees as well. So I got to see all, all aspects of it and it, it made a very stark impression. So I really found, you know, you can't say you enjoy war reporting, but I found working conflict zones um, extremely um, interesting and it sort of fired my brain on so many levels. And I think also early on in my career, you know, why do you go into journalism? I had this idea, and you mustn't go for, but you know, I wanted to tell the truth. I watched Kate A D as I was growing up and I just thought how An brave she was. Reporter. And That's I just nice. and I just thought, you know, she is sort of shining light on suffering. And I mean that sounds so trite really and, and uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say that now. But I think but I if went, it's not seen and it's not heard, then it's going it's to very, carry on. It, and then you didn't have the cynicism that you do now in social media, I think. But I think it took to going to war zones for me to realise there is no absolute truth. And that I remember that too was shocking. So, I'm, you know, there was one particular Gaza siege which was just... It was, you know, well, they are... It's devastating and... Um, but I remember having a very big argument at the time, um, as the BBC likes to do with itself, about terminology. Um, and at, at the time, you know, the UN was saying that there was a humanitarian disaster. It was the beginning of the siege, and I was arguing it wasn't a humanitarian disaster yet. I said, if we use the word humanitarian disaster now, what do we say in a month if the siege is still going yeah. on? You know, there's, all, like, there's a million adjectives you could use to describe what was going on, and none of them very complementary to the situation. But was it yet a humanitarian disaster? Now, you'd know why would the UN use that. The UN uses that because it wants to raise the alarm. The UN has a reason for using words like that when it did. It wanted to raise the alarm, make the international community aware, and all the things the UN might want to do. Should a journalist just accept the words from an organisation, or do you go on the ground and judge it? And I felt at the time that was a very important role to have. So at the time of seeing suffering and seeing a situation that, that, that was, you know, it was unjust for the average man, woman and child living um, in the Gaza Strip, at the same time it was the importance of using words and how you use them, I felt, was the reason why a journalist would be there in order to accurately describe the situation. Um, and I, I think that since, I mean, I've, I have three children now, and so I think with each child I felt, hmm, I don't really think I can justify so much maybe doing the kind of reporting that's still in my heart I would, I would still like to do because I'm somebody's mum and therefore do I think it's okay to just sort of risk my life uh, regularly. So, I mean, you know, those, those are the questions that journalists ha have to make for themselves. And I think it's unfair when people say, well, that's selfish or this. You know, it's, it's a serious judgment that each journalist makes. But if you do go to a war zone, of course, you are putting your life at risk. And you make the judgment call on that. And the BBC also, you know, that's one of the rules here, is that the BBC will not tell you you have to go and put your life in danger. And the worry these days when, you know, there's more and more freelance journalists out there is that they feel they have to put themselves into danger because that's how they're going to get known and that's how they're going to get paid for a story. But there's no organisation behind them to rescue them if they're in trouble, to pay for their medical aid or to negotiate if they're kidnapped. You know, so it's, um, I think it's... A, a more frightening world out there for, for journalists in a, in a way, actually, with so many freelancers about. Yeah, but, but I can also see that it's brave of you to go into a war zone, but it, it's brave of the commissioning editor who sent you there as well, because if you had died, they'd be at your funeral literally feeling that they'd sent you to their death. I, I would, I'd take the coward's way. I wouldn't dare send anyone to the theatre of war, because what was if they got shot? That's for your podcast with yeah. one of the editors, one of those kind of editors, not this editor. Yeah, yeah. So here's another question that's probably my 
ignorance more than anything else. But I stood for Parliament in 2005 in an unwinnable seat. I had this vision that I wanted to be an MP, which thankfully, uh, decades later, I've, uh, I've got rid of. But uh, there were some issues that the more I read into it and the more I knew about it, the, the less I knew, frankly. And it's the same with, for example, the Middle East conflict and with Brexit, is that it, part of me is thinking, well, you know, it might be confirmation bias, but I've deeply read into both issues. And frankly, I'm none the wiser, you know, and, and I, what I do reject is this, say if you take the Middle East, you know, Israel's at fault or Palestine, clearly it's an incredibly complicated, nuanced um, situation. And, and, and either side that says, oh, they're wrong or they're in the right, frankly, is going to alienate me. But is there a little bit of that, that where the more you throw yourself into the situation, that actually it, it reinforces your existing perhaps personal view or, or, or has it changed as a result of your coverage? No, I think the biggest challenge, you know, I thought about going into law before I decided to go into journalism. And in a way, I think it's because I'd watched too many legal dramas. I love those legal dramas. <laughs> and well, I was a student. And I thought, oh, it'd be so quite, quite nice to have a whole load of rules and then be able to manipulate those rules to kind of, to, to sort of win an argument. So I'm a big, big, big reader. And sometimes before I'm going on air, I have to stop myself reading. And it, it's not because I don't want to know anymore. It's because I've already read so much. And actually what my job is to distill information and to make things clear. So if you don't, if you know nothing about Brexit and the Middle East, I've obviously done a really rubbish job. <laughs> but, uh, but the, but or, the, or maybe I know too much. But the, but the idea, I think, is that, yes, I mean, you, you, you can keep reading. I think uh, as a student, I remember when I was at school and at, at university, what, the only part of essay writing I enjoyed was the reading you did around it. And the fact that I would try to find books or essays that contradicted each other and then make up my mind from that. And I enjoyed doing that. And there's a large element of that in my, in my job. So, for example, when it comes to Brexit and all of my background sources, as I told you, that are now refusing to go on camera. But I will obviously get lots of different points of view. Um, and sometimes you can say, well, that's the French or well, that's the Danes. Yeah. And they would be like that or whatever. But you're just you're kind of amassing. I let it all come at me. It all comes at me and I take it all in and then I stand back and I think. And that's also the joy of being in an editor role because I don't have to do this, well, they say this and they say that and they say that. I can say, this is what's been happening. We know that anyway. I have brilliant colleagues, brilliant correspondents who are telling you about the news and what's happening. And I get to stand back and say, well, this is the context. This is what it means. This is what it means. This is why it's happening now. This is why it's happening at this particular level, at this time. The, the person, you know, this is the statement that was made, but you have to understand the background. A bit like I was saying to you earlier, when the Prime Minister goes to Florence to give a speech on Brexit, the context says, who is she talking to? Because the assumption is she said she wanted to talk to the European partners because they kept clamouring for what kind of Brexit do you want? But actually that speech was very much aimed at a domestic audience and at her own political party. So, that, so that's the context that I think one can bring. And you need to read and read and read and read and read and read and experience and learn in order to be able to provide that context. So no, I, I think carry on reading and, you know, you, I, 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 I think, it, of course, I understand if you felt you kept reading and you got more and more confused. But I think then, you know, then then I think you have to just say, I'm confused. And then you have to find a trusted source. And I suppose that that's the thing about the media world that we live in, you know, as the BBC I would hope that you would come to the BBC and say, this is somewhere that can help me sort some of my thoughts out because they're impartial, right? You're nodding. I'm so glad. Um, and uh, But you will try to trust the source and say, I'm confused because there's this and there's that and there's that and I cannot make head or tail of it. And what I do like very much with my colleagues here, and I enjoyed that so much when I was in the Middle East, we had a bureau with full of lively debate. And that was so important. You know, at the time, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict now has disappeared largely from, from the airwaves, actually. You know, it, it doesn't get the attention that it, that it used to. Um, but while I was there, it was still front and centre. We had Palestinian producers in the office. We had Israeli producers um, in the office. We had staff that had come from London, people who were more experienced in the Middle East, people who were less experienced in the Middle East. And we would have these huge debates about coverage and about words. Because if you remember when um, Israel built a barrier between Israel and the West Bank, what do you call it? Do you call it a fence? The actual well, then choice what do the people, of word. What do the yeah. people in Bethlehem say when they've got a great huge concrete wall in front of them? That's not a fence. 
That's a wall. Is it a wall in its entirety? No, it's not. Okay, is it a barrier then? Ah, okay, so maybe barriers in more n- neutral word. Then the Israelis would call it a security barrier. But then that gives it a certain... So you know, It's emotionally I, loaded. Very much. So I, I found that kind of discussion intellectually very interesting, just as much as I thought I would have enjoyed being a, a lawyer, trying to kind of have those rules and sort of use them to the argument you want to make. And, and my role in the Middle East was what we call live and continuous. And that is a minefield in the Middle East, you know probably not whether you should use but you know it's a it's it's that's a very um tricky job to have in the middle east because every word is scrutinized it really is what you say and how you say it and there are websites dedicated to the bbc and what we say um and so to go live when something had just happened in lebanon or syria or you know the israeli-palestinian conflict is a risk but it was thrilling because i had to know my stuff i had to know it but you also have to kind of memorise the vocabulary because even if you're just on air, you can't just say Islamic State. You'd have to say so-called Islamic State. Do, yeah, do you yeah. have like a, do you remember the vocabulary that you just but, use? But that's my job. It's my job. I shouldn't be in this job if I couldn't do those kind of things. You have to know what you're saying and why you're saying it. You need to know the context. You need to do your homework. And you can't just sit back and say, for example, with me, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I've been you know, covering Europe for so many years. I know what Germany's like. Well, look at the recent election. Do we know what Germany's like? No. Haven't we been surprised? That's what we were talking about right at the beginning. Haven't we been surprised by Europe so much over the Prime Minister called a referendum thinking he would would win and was surprised. And look at the United States now. I mean, you know, there's there's so many things we we cannot take polls for granted. We cannot take... I cannot take my knowledge for granted. You know, and as you say, yes, 20 years. So 20 years. And then, you know, before that for the the Austrian Broadcasting Corporation and so on. But I don't... At no point... And that's what I love about this job. You can't just say, I know it. I've seen it. And therefore, and they're also therefore on a personal view, it's just boring because I just trot out the same. It's always changing, and I'm always learning. And so, contrary to what you said, I'm always reading. And do you always get the the time to reflect as you need to do? Because I mean, I, I won't point out how many decades you've been doing this again, but um, you know, the, the nature of news gathering has changed. Uh, you know, you mentioned Theresa May giving a speech abroad, but being mindful of the fact that her audience was back home. I mean, I work for chief executives and do their PR, and in the olden days, 20 years ago, they could segment audiences, so they'd write a little piece for the customer newsletter, something separate for their shareholders, something for their staff newsletter, something for their supplier. And that you know they'd be able to segment the audiences and optimize the message. Now, if you're a CEO on Twitter or a leader like Theresa May, um, if you tweet or you give a speech, yes, it might be aimed at one particular audience, but all the other audiences are seeing it as well and can weigh in. And then there's also the impact of rolling news as well. That you know, do you, is there an you know the spectacle element and the fact that you have to keep providing the news channel with content? Is that is that, as I said, is, has that stopped your or curtailed your ability to give you the reflection time that you need? I think it's interesting. We've had a debate about that at the BBC over the years. Um, and and I think because foreign the foreign news department at, at the at the BBC is called news gathering. I rather like it always sort of makes me think of you know kind of someone galloping on a horse with an yeah, arrow exactly. or something, which I've never done. Um, but um, the the argument was with rolling news at the time when it first started. Can you gather if you're permanently another not such a nice phrase a dish bunny basically standing there doing live and continuous news rolling news wherever you are would be it here westminster the middle east or or, or wherever so i think do i have the chance in my job yes i do because because it's a different job also and as an editor you're not on air all the time you know, we have at the BBC lots of correspondence, fantastic correspondence, and some things are seen as an editor story and some aren't. You know, I might write a blog or, you know, rather than be on a breaking news story, if it's, I, I don't think it's an editor's story, there's not analysis to be put in it, I might be writing a blog and putting something into context or, you know, so there is, I wouldn't say there's lots of time because the honest truth is I feel like, you know, there's loads of being on planes and covering stories in different in, in different parts of Europe, um, plus, you know, your own personal um, life, Brexit, cover, you know, keeping across all of British domestic politics as well because I can't cover... Um, Brexit from the European perspective without fully understanding what's going on in the UK as well. So it's a massive job. Time? No. But I think you learn to, um, you know, like there's power napping, I think there's power reflecting. And you you learn to do it while, you know, folding the laundry at three in the morning or on on another plane. So, you know, I use 
and sometimes, you know, my kids will say to me, Mom, you're not listening. And it's true. It's not because I'm on my phone, but it's because in my head I'm thinking, hmm, that's an interesting angle on this part of Brexit that I hadn't. And literally, it's, I'm as sad as that. But your brain is, my brain anyway, is permanently kind of playing with the, with the ideas and those reflections are there and often at sort of ridiculous times of, of night. <laughs> but do you get time to switch off at all? Because I'm a news addict. I'm on Twitter 24-7. Uh, I'm addicted to, you know, wanting to know everything that's going on, the latest everything. I follow f- thousands of people on Twitter, ridiculously so. You know, do you, do you get time to switch off? Do you have downtime? Um, I think summer holiday is something that I love and... You know, Europe, European politics, <laughs> I always laugh about, I'm sorry, I do laugh about Brussels because it's, you know, they take the holidays, very important. August, nothing happens with a capital N and a capital H. Right. So, you know, even if something happens, it doesn't happen because everybody thinks they have to go down to the seaside. Um, obviously, as a journalist, it's not the same as a, as a European politician and we would have to cover breaking news. But um, there are certain times of year, such as August, whereas, whereas I will try and take that time with my family because so many other family times I have to... To disappoint because I have to I have to go away, um, and I think that's one leveler. Uh, having children stops you from ever taking yourself too seriously, and it stops me from turning into a complete news head. So although I I'm passionate about my job and my subject and many other aspects of journalism besides, not just the ones that I cover, and um, I have three very small people who are pulling and prodding and jumping on my head um, and who are demanding my attention come away. And I think that's made my journalism better, actually. Oh, well, I'd have to say that, wouldn't I? But I, I hope so, because it's that very important step back that I was talking about. You know, when you're too up close to your story, you know, it's not my job to be emotional about my story. You know, not even when you're in a war zone, and that's harder if you're in a war zone. To not to distance. feel emotional about it. But even if you are, you have to sit on it. It's not supposed to come into the kind of reporting the BBC does for news coverage. It doesn't belong there. And so, so I think having something as strong as offspring pulling you helps me do that. And I, think, I, I do think that's important. Uh, do you have coping strategies for that? So when you're in the war zone and you see someone shot or injured, uh, you, you do the, the impartial, dispassionate piece to camera and then do you kind of reflect on it personally and, and maybe get upset because you're a human being and you've seen someone injured? That, that must affect anyone. It does. And, you know, we're all more aware than ever of post-traumatic stress. Um, I think when... And again, you know, this goes back to what I was saying about freelancers earlier who, who are often on their own... I, I would be very concerned in those cases for, for PTSD and not just just physical just safety, because I think with you know with the BBC you're travelling at least with a producer if it's for radio if it's for TV you've got a, a camera person if it's a war zone the BBC will send a security advisor with you as well, and there's a lot to be said for de-stressing with your team. And I think the BBC, like many organisations in recent years, has become much more aware of those kind of situations and there's counselling offered if people need it, trauma counselling. Yeah, it's taken very seriously by the organisation and I think whereas not even that that long ago really, as a journalist in the war zone, you had to be hard and not, you know, not be affected. I think you know, you're allowed to be affected by it and that and that's okay. But camaraderie, I think, you know, if you talk to soldiers, they say very much the same thing is that they're with them with mates and you chat about stuff. Um and I'm not comparing journalists to soldiers in any way. But what I'm saying is is that if you're in a stressful situation and a traumatic situation, you don't just have to be in a war zone. If you think about journalists who cover very um traumatic uh, court cases such as when it comes to child abuse that can cause PTSD very very easily it's distressing to watch the report it's it's you know and so and and also just as of course famously September the 11th um, those in news who were just watching the news feeds come in and just seeing all of those distressing um, uh, images PTSD once again you don't have to be physically in a war zone and I think the news industry recognizes that now very 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 clearly um and i think that you know having colleagues around you who are sharing your experience is just invaluable then you know you talk you talk things through afterwards you'll probably make some silly jokes black humor black humor is always 
very useful, I think, in in terrible situations. But journalists seem to be in in more danger than ever before in the war zone. I mean, um, you know, gone are the old rules of respecting the impartiality of journalism. And you are, I would say, much more likely to take a bullet now in a war zone than someone 30 years was going to do that. I mean, that is a real risk. Yeah, it's not just a bullet, but it's the kidnap threat, I think, that... um, And again, I mean... Just as I say, I mean, my role as Europe editor does not involve me going into war zones now. Um, But uh, when I was there, it was towards the end of my time there, probably the last two years where the kidnap threat shot up and where, you know, we used to on the sort of jeep that we travel around in in different areas of the Middle East, um, you'd have a sign that said press that you would put on the front of the car in English or in Arabic or whatever. And then we learnt in certain cases to take that down. Because that would mean you're a target. Because it would mean you're a target. Incredible. Um, You know, our flak jackets would say press. Then we were given flak flak jackets without press on it. So while I was there, I saw things change. But I was not working in the Middle East um, after the the appearance of so-called Islamic State. And that was an absolute game changer. And that that was not one that I was part of. Uh, Do you think the BBC has a duty not to purchase uh, spectacular videos that a freelancer might have shot in the theatre of war because they're going to want to get something that's quite visually spectacular so that uh, you know someone in in news gathering will buy it from them you know fox news arguably encourage these freelancers to put themselves in danger because they buy them Uh, you know we're back to the whether the bbc has a duty not to cover it but of course as a reporter you must feel a temptation that if you if you've got footage of the thing you're reporting on happening uh, that's available why wouldn't you want to put it to air what we have internally as journalists the debate is what footage is acceptable to show for the audience and then we have the famous watershed you know what can you show at certain times of night depending what time of night it was um and i think sometime where recently another colleague was who was in um a part of the middle east and had witnessed some terrible suffering of children and there was a big argument about how much could be shown. And often I think then the journalist who's on the spot will typically want to show more than perhaps a programme editor in London who's looking at things from a different point of view. And that's, again, where I talk about the emotion. Because if you've seen something and you want the world to know, because you want the world to stop it, Mm. but then it's also the duty of the BBC to have a more dispassionate editor somewhere else in the organisation who can say, understood, but can we show that without showing perhaps the full horror? And so, you know, those are the kind of debates that that the BBC has. And I think when it comes to war coverage, an organisation like the BBC that, that, that tries not to be sensationalist... But, more, but factual in its news reporting, it's important that you do have bigger groups like that because it's what kind of news do you want? Is this an organisation that permanently has a breaking news strap on it? No. Will it become that one day? <laughs> Who knows where news is going? But that's not the BBC that I'm, I'm in at the moment or, or, or that I have worked with. And, and therefore, those are the kind of debates that you will see between journalists and editors is, I feel really strongly we need to put that in, but I don't think it's... And so on. And in the end, somebody will have to take a call and it will be referred up. You know, if it, if it gets difficult and it's something very controversial, that will get referred up through through various branches of management. Sometimes the public will judge the BBC to have been right, and other times, as we know with, with recent scandals, not the case. So, it's, it, you know, it, it yes, but it's an ongoing debate. It's difficult as well to, to know where the line is, even as a viewer. I remember when Saddam Hussein was executed, I think the BBC showed him being led up the gallows, paused before the noose was put on him but then continued the audio for another few seconds which seems to happen a lot of times now in when there's imagery of uh, offensive things and horrendous things happening but i remember being at the time being very disturbed even by that there's so many there's so many different arguments in here it's like are you going to disturb um the viewers uh is one question the other thing is are you going to desensitize viewers that's, a, that's another question. Because no... if it's all gore and horror, I remember when I was in, in Italy as a student and I was working um, for different news organisations and just sort of jobbing, basically. And uh, and I remember Italian TV, the, the news was shocking, really, you know, with the mafia murders. I, there was one particular day that sort of sticks in my mind where one mafia group gunned down the family of a rival group who'd come to a funeral. I mean in the graveyard when they were at the funeral. And and it was just awful. shown in full multicolour wow. on the news. And I just thought, wow, 
um, and I wasn't working for the BBC yet or anything like that, but it, it really stuck in my mind as to, you know, did it help me understand the story better? No. And if, if I saw that every day, I'd get sensitised to that and I wouldn't be shocked. So I think those are the two arguments. Are you going to shock people too much or are you going to desensitise them? And if you actually want to make people aware of a situation, if it's just commonplace, then the the... the, the the thought is also people might switch off after all. We do see that with um, humanitarian disasters that, you know, if you look at public viewing figures, for example, there, there may be what's called fatigue, which seems um, very cruel, perhaps, but it's just human nature, I think. You know, so at the beginning of a disaster or at the beginning of a humanitarian crisis, there might be a peak of audience interest. But if the same pictures are shown on the news night after night after night after night, and we're not talking about whether they're gory or not, but it's sort of pictures showing humanitarian disaster, then audience interest drops. So, you know, these are healthy debates. I think one very key debate, of course, is about um, if there are extremist groups such as so-called Islamic State video beheading videos, do you show any of it? Oh, I hope not. Or do you, you know, I mean, not even the beheading, but I mean, do you even show the beginning of it or anything like that? Because they deliberately dress them in Guantanamo Bay That's right. jumpsuits. So, or or, or visit, do visuals. news organisations say, well, our rivals are showing it, and then if we don't show it, or do you take a stand and say they, they don't deserve any publicity at all? So these are very live debates, and they be. should always be reopened. I think it's that's, again, going back to never sitting on your your laurels. Those are editorial decisions. Um that that are made in news organisations, and they should the book should never be shut because there's always reason to open again and discuss again. Katya, you're multilingual. You speak five languages fluently, as well as Hebrew and Arabic. That must be a huge asset to to what you do in your role. I I love that actually because I remember when I first started at the BBC, I didn't feel it was valued actually, and I I felt. I mean, no one said this. So, but I felt almost as if there was a slight suspicion that if you could speak a language really well, you're kind of one of them. <laughs> and then I would agree you know, with that, of course, you know, only speaking and, English. And um, and and again, I, I have to say this that no one ever said that to me. But I that I, that's the feeling. It I was got. a vibe that um, you got. I, I think now it's it's very different, and I know that uh, I've always felt that languages are very important. I don't speak Hebrew and Arabic well, but. I think what you do speak opens so many doors because people just appreciate so much when you make an effort. And what always worried me in the Middle East is that in the end you have to rely on an interpreter and you have to know that that interpreter hasn't got any bias themselves. Well, back because to choice you rely of words. On what, yeah. So in Europe now, and especially with Brexit, so when I have all of my, as I say, frustratedly off-the-record talks rather than on camera um, many times now, I often hold those conversations in people's own language. And the Germans will be more candid and the Italians will be more candid. The Austrians, people, you know, I don't speak Danish, but um, but they, but you know, people are generally more open to you um, if they can speak their own language. And also, I think, especially when we were talking earlier about this anti-establishment sentiment, where do you feel it? Not just by talking to people, but by looking at graffiti or being able to being able to go on Twitter. And reading not just in English, but in different languages, what's being said with Brexit, how it's being interpreted abroad. I mean, can I understand political cartoons in different languages and different papers? That's useful for me. And also Twitter's translation algorithm, whilst I'm sure it means well, can't get the subtleties of sarcasm or nuance. It's just a it's just an algorithmic translation of a tweet in German that I'm reading and you don't really get a lot. No, and Google Translate's not very helpful either sometimes. I remember when I was doing this documentary about uh, Spain's stolen babies and we thought we might find there was a match, a possible match between a, a man who'd been adopted and ended up in the United States and this Spanish family where this woman thought that her baby had been stolen while she was in hospital just after giving birth extremely powerful but anyway he didn't speak Spanish and they didn't speak any English and I was filming all of this you know and, and also before he came to meet them in Spain and before they did the DNA test and all of this but all of this huge emotion and history and pain was done through Google Translate and you know it was still powerful for them but of course it lost a lot of the poignancy of the actual wording uh, through Google Translate so um I still would love to learn many more languages. Really, I'd, I'd love to do it, actually, um, because I love languages 
but I'm I'm grateful for the ones that I that I do speak and I do like to use them. Do you think it's all, we're almost unlucky us Brits that the rest of the world speaks speaks our language as their second language because it almost encourages a tiny bit of laziness. My wife uh, makes an effort to learn a lot of languages, but I was in Paris with her a, a few months ago and she was trying to speak French and the people she was speaking with spoke back to her in English, not, not to patronize her but to be polite. They thought they were being nice, but actually it was unhelpful. And I, and I wonder whether there's a you know there's a slight element of Brexit there, and where, where you know we've we've we are an island nation, and we by accident more than anything else, everyone speaks our language. We don't have to learn theirs. I think it's very lucky. I think it's an absolute gift. Of course it is, because it means that if you're a native English speaker, you can work anywhere in the world you want, or you can stay in the UK and work with companies all over the world. Um, you know, and it is a gift because everybody else struggles to learn your language and um, meetings will be held in your language and therefore you have the upper hand. So I think English speakers should feel very blessed um, and, you know, you could argue, what's the point in me speaking German or Italian? I mean, how many people speak German and Italian these days? But, yeah, I love my languages. It happens to be very useful for my job and it's also just related to from my personal history having moved around to different countries and being able to make very close friendships also with people um, in, in different languages. So I, I'm not a, a proselytizing language learner. Um, it's just a, it's a passion of mine and a passion that happens to be very useful in, in my career. Do you think in German when you're speaking German to a person? So this person uh, you're speaking with is speaking German to you. Do, are you thinking about what they're saying in German or are you translating it into English for your thought process? Well, you know what I think in German actually is that so um, partly during my studies, but um, also just, just after university, I went to Vienna. And my aim in the first year, I said, I'm not going to get a job in an international company and I'm not going to go back to the English language radio station I'd, I'd been before as a student because I wanted to learn German well, to speak it well, and I wanted to understand the Austrians. So what I did in all of those years then that I, I spent in Austria is that I saw these American soap operas in German because they're dubbed into German. So like, I think, I can't remember what there was. I think Beverly Hills 90210 at the time or whatever great it was. Show. I can't remember. Great show, intellectual show, good for the Europe editor to watch. But anyway, but all of that was in German. So when I then heard them later in life speaking American, it was just, you know, American English. It was like, no, 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 those aren't supposed yeah. to be their, their voices. I think German, my German is so fluent that when I speak German, I think in German. Um, and it, its language has become more or less rusty. So I don't get to use... Italian as much as I'd like to and so I think at the moment I tend to think in English very quickly before I speak Italian and after I've been there a couple of days then then that comes back so it's a familiarity thing what always helps me to get back into a language is to read so I'll read a newspaper put on the radio and that's how I learned Spanish I lied at the BBC to get the job as Madrid correspondent right. they said to me do you speak Spanish I said yeah of course of course I do but I didn't I spoke Italian and French so the first thing that I did was there was no BBC office at the time then there was my 36 square metered apartment which was my apartment and the BBC office apparently um, and uh, and I sat there and I had the TV on with Mexican soap operas wall to wall all day and the radio on in um, the Spanish news channel in Spanish, Spanish. So I learned this bizarre mixture of Mexican soap opera Spanish and Spanish, Spanish, new Spanish. And that's how I very quick, I just, just shut myself in and learned it. Actually, this has been such an interesting conversation. We could go on for another hour or two, but we are running out of metaphorical tips, so we're going to have to leave it there. Thank yeah. you ever so much. You're welcome. A Right Angles podcast in association with Big Things Media.